On today's episode of Shooting the Breeze, La Nina is no more, at least for now. So we're going to break down what La Nina is, what El Nino is, and what that whole climate pattern means for us in central Illinois, across the country, and how it impacts weather conditions across the world. So sit back, relax, and let's shoot the breeze with your local weather authority. Good afternoon, I'm your local weather authority, Chief Meteorologist Chris Yates, joined by Meteorologist Molly Mace. Hello. And Meteorologist Adam Sherwinski. Hey, hey. Hey, how y'all doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Coming off a weekend? Coming off a weekend. You look fresh, ready to go. I, I don't know if I feel fresh, though, because yeah. it's, never, it's never long enough, you know that. How does it feel with your weekends or in the middle of the week? Quiet. Yeah. Not a lot happening. Which is kind of a good thing. Yeah. Like when I went uh, fishing the other day, it's like there was nobody out there because everyone was either at home or at work. Yeah, that's got to be nice. There's only a handful of people out there, so. Nah, I love it. Well, hey, it's um, it's been a, hopefully you've all listening have had a good week or a good day or a good year, which, you know, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, uh, may or may not have been so good. Um, but hey, uh, thanks for st- uh, thanks for joining us. It is uh, we've got some breaking news from the Climate Prediction Center. La Nina is no more. So we'll talk about the El Nino Southern Oscillation and what that means for the weather in Central Illinois going forward. But first, on this day in history, history, history. history, history. So we have a lot going on. Uh, a lot of it is tornadic. But let's start with May 14th, 1886 at 10 p.m. After having already caused one death in Indiana, an F4 tornado hit Salina, Ohio, leaving four more dead and 20 injured. Then at 1130, an F3 tornado killed 11 and injured 25 as it destroyed much of Dunkirk and Cary, Ohio. That's for the 14th when we're recording this. Let's go back a little bit further, back into Illinois. Raritan, Illinois. An F4 tornado. May 13th, 1995. Seven injured. Zero. Zero killed. Uh, several farms leveled near Disco, Illinois. May 12th, 1876, so we're going way back. The first American newspaper with weather maps was published in the New York Herald. And uh, as we've mentioned before, it's been a while. It was pretty uh, pretty early in the history of weather to have that as weather maps. I mean, we're talking 1800s, 1900s when we were first starting to see maps regularly seen by the uh, public. All right, another big one. Flint, Michigan, F4 tornado, May 12th, 1956. 6.6 mile path, three killed, 116 injured, 71 homes, and five commercial buildings destroyed. So that was a big one for uh, Michiganders. Uh, they usually don't get that kind of severe weather, but that's one that sticks in the back of people's minds. Another big one, 1953, the Waco tornado, F5, struck downtown, collapsing many structures, 114 dead, 597 injured, and many seriously hurt. Death toll tied with the number of dead in the Goliad tornado of 1902. Another big one, May 11th. They just had the anniversary for this. Uh, they had a celebration, or not a celebration, a memorial and everything with it. 1970, the Lubbock, Texas tornado killed 26, uh, 26 people, injured more than 1,500 along its eight-and-a-half-mile track. And then one that's a little bit closer to me because I used to live down there, the Pitcher, Oklahoma, Neosho, Missouri, EF4 tornado, May 10th, 2008, 75.51-mile path, 
21 people killed, 350 injured, 200 uh, uh, homes destroyed at pitcher. And that was usually, I, some people I've, I've talked to them, that usually is like the final nail in the coffin for uh, the community of pitcher. It's a ghost town right now. Very few people, if any at all. A lot of people were, It's a, it was a mining town, and the tornado was kind of the last straw before it completely collapsed. Man. So you can drive through there, a lot of chat piles, uh, but you won't find many folks around there. All right, all good information, and uh, you know, we're getting used to seeing a lot of historic tornado stuff uh, mm-hmm. this time of year. And this time of year, I've looked through every other day. I usually get one post a day that I see from that uh, page. Uh, this day in weather history, it's a great page uh, to follow on Facebook. But uh, it's always tornadoes this time of year. Yep. So when I find something that's not tornadic, I'm like, I'm going to jot that down because usually <laughs> you don't want to hear about tornadoes every single day. Uh, unfortunately, there's no like on this day in history. It was sunny in Seattle, which you know. In itself, may be historic. Yeah, but <laughs> hey, might be. it might be historic uh, this upcoming week for us here in Central Illinois. But hey, we'll get back to our weather later. Uh, so and so, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, the Climate Prediction Center officially saying, "Hey, La Nina is no more." Yay! Yay! Which I mean, love or hate relationship. I know for when I was growing up in Southern California, we dreaded El Ninos. Mm-hmm. Um, La Ninas were okay, uh, but uh, a lot of things happen. Uh, with La Niña's in particular. So if you remember, um, you know, we had some pretty brutal cold snaps over the last, you know, couple of winters. That Those cold snaps typically are a little more aggressive during La Niña's. This year wasn't terrible, but it, we had some prolonged periods of cold. I think we started off very, very warm, and then we were very, very cold, and we just kind of stayed cold for a while. Mm-hmm. And, this, and we've even seen that into the spring. Uh, most of, you know, you can – historically, central Illinois, or at least the Midwest – and the southeast tend to see an uptick in severe weather uh, coming out of La Nina winters. Hasn't really materialized, at least for the Midwest, um, but the southeast has seen a little bit more active severe weather, mm-hmm. uh, especially in March. And we had above, nationally, we had above average um, tornadoes throughout the, much, uh, throughout the month of March. But April and May both have been fairly quiet. Uh, still, the tornadoes that we have had have been really driven and focused along the southeast, which they've been under how many PDS tornado watches this year? Two or three. They've been under, I think, a high risk and a handful or a couple of moderates. I mean, it's been it's been it's been a wild couple of of months down there in the southeast. Thankfully, it's starting to to quiet down a little bit. Um, but that focus for severe weather has to do with the jet stream kind of, you know, racing across the central plains, dropping down, and then starting to bottom out near the southeast and so with that jet stream you get that stronger wind shear and uh, you know you get the moisture coming off the gulf everything just kind of comes together for severe weather Um, that pattern has kind of persisted which is why uh, we've been so cool and it hasn't been all that humid Uh, there's some you know we've had a good deal of rain but we really haven't had much in the way Mm -hmm. of severe weather it's probably also uh, causing some of the ongoing or at least uh, making conditions worse across northern Illinois where we're dealing uh, with moderate drought conditions because the air is drier. You're also getting a little bit more wind in this pattern. And so whatever moisture is dropping is being sucked out of the ground and evaporating, and it's just not being put to good use. And so stream flows are kind of near or below average. We're not, you know, we haven't dealt with much river flooding this spring, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are kind of grateful for. Um, but, you know, we're still dealing with some drought conditions up north. Uh, so, Molly, you got some things. Uh, what about what do you want to mention about the El Nino Southern Oscillation? So <clears throat> what I have is just kind of some like 
general notes about kind of the cycle of the El Nino La Nina, uh, kind of background information. This is all coming from the Pacific Ocean. The Pacific Ocean is a massive body of water. Uh, I read that if you put it into perspective, if you were to walk the equator of the Earth, if you were just to walk the whole thing, 40% of your walk would be the Pacific Ocean. Like that, it's a very large body of water. The El Nino is a big heat release. And that big heat release can cause a lot of problems, especially for coastal areas. And we call it the El Nino Southern Oscillation because most of this happens like right along the equator and south of it. But it does have a huge impact on us here locally. Right. And so that heat release during El Nino is that heat release happens in the eastern Pacific. In La Nina is that heat release happens in the western Mm -hmm. Pacific. Um, and if you've ever watched global temperature trends, you'll notice that the, the entire globe's temperature, you know, stair steps up a little bit after every El Nino. Mm-hmm. And because the oceans do store a lot of heat, and when that heat is released, you can see that big boost in temperatures. It's, it does have a really big effect. Uh, typically, uh, we have mentioned before that when we're looking at, like, climate averages, we're going in 10-year periods, we're going over a decade. Over if any given decade, typically... An El Nino year was associated with the warmest year in that decade, and a La Nina year was typically associated with the coldest year during that decade. Of course, there's going to be the outliers, but typically that was the association. Um, La Ninas tend to be a lot longer than El Ninos. El Ninos tend to have a little bit of a shorter lifespan. However, again, there's outliers. There have been very long-lasting El Ninos. However, they tend to have a bit of a three- to five-year cycle between the two of them. And then we get to El Enso Neutral, where we're not in any pattern at all. We're kind of in that transitional phase type deal. Yeah, there, and so if you're wondering how do we determine which phase of Enso we are in, forecasters look, so the they break down the equatorial Pacific into specific regions. There's region one and two, which are closer to the South American coastline. There's uh, region three, which is kind of a big stretch um, from the... Basically, it's the Eastern Pacific, and then you get more towards the Central Pacific in Region 4. But the region they look at, and that is kind of the what, what we would refer to as the, the, the ENSO index, you know, it kind of rates, determines, or at least in, plays a big part in determining uh, where we are, is Nino th- Region 3.4, which is smack dab. And I don't know the lats and longs off the top of my head, but it doesn't really matter for the purpose of this conversation. But it's that middle section, and they kind of take the average, you know, they look at the average temperature anomaly. Now, one thing that was interesting with this is, according to Climate Prediction Center, they still noted that the eastern, that that region 3.4 still sits about three quarters of a degree below average. Now, the threshold for La Nina conditions is a half degree below average. And so you would say, like, well, if you were just looking at that and that alone, you're like, why didn't we, why are we considered to be no longer in La Nina when we're still below that half degree threshold? And they cited a couple of things. They looked at the overall, the the prevailing wind and precip patterns in the Pacific. Those no longer match up with typical La Nina wind and precip conditions. So that part of the equation has to be factored in. They're like, well, even though the sea surface temperatures are still cooler, uh, the wind prevail the the prevailing wind patterns and the the rain patterns start to are no longer representing what we see with La Nina. Then they also look at the you know we we look at sea surface temperature, so the temperature of the water at the surface. But if you go down below 
the surface of the water. The actual the water temperatures are starting to warm up. So that source, because that you know that the water doesn't just doesn't stay in its layers. It it rises and it sinks, and that water is going to rise. That warmer water is going to rise up, and so they're expecting, and it's going to continue to see warming in the eastern Pacific over the coming months. And so they felt comfortable and confident enough to say, well, La Nina is over because we've lost the wind pattern. We've lost the rain pattern. And uh, so now La Nina, La Nina is dead for now. Uh, based on their projections and models forecast, they give us about a 67% chance that we will head into ENSO neutral um, through the summer and uh, early fall. And then there are some questions after that. But before we get into that. When I was in college, uh, I had a professor that say La Nada. So it's El Nino, La Nina, La, La Nada. Nada. I yep. like it. Yep. That's I a think good it, one. it should catch on. I don't, and I don't think there's any type of uh, necessary, what, what do we get with Enso Neutral? It's just variable. Mm-hmm. And, and look, La Nina's and El Nino's are variable to begin with. And y- you kind of see the, you see what their overall impact was once it's kind of come and gone. Mm-hmm. But you also see how it interacted with other, because we have, there's a whole bunch of these oscillations. I mean, was it the North Atlantic one? North we Atlantic, about? the uh, Arctic Oscillation, mm-hmm. the Eastern Pacific. Uh, there, there's, there's a whole bunch of these. Right. And then there's, there's the Madden Julian one, which is it, it just goes on and on. And it's, it's how those all time out and interact with each other, which is really hard to pinpoint. Which, <laughs> which is why it's hard to, to forecast what's going to happen mm-hmm. down, you know, six months from now pretty much down the road in no el nino or la nina no two are exactly the same in terms of intensity you can get an el nino year but not as intense as other years you can get a la nina year that's not quite as intense as other years and that also plays a role Mm -hmm. i mean right you could have one that's almost seems like a neutral but it's not neutral it's still technically in la nina based off of surface temperatures and that impact will still change things i mean it's just the, the degree of how powerful or not powerful but how much of a anomaly it is. Some mm-hmm. are, again, some are stronger, some aren't. So with La Nina's, uh, one thing that's different, uh, we'll do La Nina, then we'll go into uh, to the impacts from an El Nino. But with La Nina's, uh, since your sea surface temperatures are cooler in the eastern Pacific, uh, you're not getting you're not getting heat, re, you know, the temperatures are not as warm. So they're not generating more clouds and therefore not generating uh, more precip in the eastern Pacific compared to what's going on out west. That also impacts... Um, the way the wind blows along the equatorial Pacific. And so what ends up happening is the jet stream, pretty much it's a variable Pacific jet that goes north and then d- drops south somewhere across the central U.S. Now that jet stream continues to shift, but it's prevailing pattern. Comes across the uh, comes across the central U.S., down through the southeast, and then brings some very strong wind shear to the southeast and then rises back up into the north, north Atlantic. Uh, that pattern typically continues with brings to uh, what can bring dry conditions to the southwest U.S. So San Diego, California, we also we t- would typically have some very dry winters. If you look at California now, uh, they're under some very dire drought conditions. They, you know, and it, they're always under drought conditions, but it's even worse now than it was just six months ago. And I think La Nina has played a role in that. Um, now, if we flip the switch to El Nino, what happens? Well, instead of that variable jet stream going up north and sweeping down, you've now got a stronger subtropical jet coming in because you've got you're generating now more heat in the eastern Pacific, or there's more heat being released from the eastern Pacific. That rising warm, humid air creates more showers and thunderstorms. The wind patterns change because of that, and all of that is blowing now into the southern 
U.S. So now you're dealing with uh, atmospheric rivers, per se, of moisture streaming into the southwest. So you get your heavy range or flooding rainfalls in California. Then you get those stronger west to east winds across the south U.S., and that actually has an impact on hurricane seasons. Because now, near in the equatorial Pacific, you have stronger jet stream winds, which are shearing apart your your storm. So your your hurricanes are not going to be, uh, typically your hurricane seasons are not as strong during El Nino years. But it's no coincidence that we had our record-setting hurricane season last year with 30 named storms during a La Nina season. I was just actually going to talk about that, Me too. too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, when it comes to that, that's the interesting thing is that while the temperatures, it, it, and it's also the same for the east, or flip-flops for the eastern uh, uh, basin, or eastern side of the basin in the Pacific, when you have in El Nino, yeah, you've got the warm moisture, that you, or the warmth you need for the hurricane, so they have a more active season in the Pacific, mm-hmm. but it's the opposite in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. You flip it to uh, La Nina, like we saw, and you've, like you said, you've got the uh, warmer, you've got less of the impact from the wind shear, something you don't need for hurricane right. development, and that's why we had such a crazy year um, this past season. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays a role, but I thought it was interesting when I was looking up some old notes that also it affects uh, rain, too, as well in Indonesia. You know, is Indonesia going to get more rain or less rain? It all depends on La Nina or El Nino. Where is that warm spot going to develop, closer to Indonesia or away from Indonesia? And that also plays a role in the monsoon. So it all trickles. It's all connected in some weird yep. way. Mm-hmm. The closer you are to a warm body of water, yeah. the chances of you getting more rain drastically increase. And, and in the tropics, yep. obviously. And you tropics. look at Florida. They get you know nightly showers and thunderstorms, mm-hmm. especially when it starts to warm up. And there's that's no coincidence. And it's because you got 80 degrees, <laughs> your water temperatures are in the 80s. Uh, so you're every day, you're, you've got an unlimited supply of warm, moist air. The Gulf of Mexico is a perfect example. Per, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. All right, so we kind of broke down what ENSO is. Where um, do we go from here? Unless you guys, before we get into the forecast, is there anything you wanted to add, Molly? No, because we kind of tied everything in together um, that, you know, hurricane seasons tend to be more severe during La Nina's. Uh, which you wouldn't necessarily think of, but yeah, that's what it does. I think one thing that we also have to mention is that just because there's an El Nino or a La Nina or a La Nada, as we have said, um, that isn't the end-all, be-all in terms right. of forecasting for either the tropics or just in general. Um, our day-to-day weather is completely dependent on other factors, or it's dependent on other factors as well, as is tropical forecasting. You can have as I said, as an intense or less intense La Nina or El Nino, that'll play a role. But also, what's happening in the NAO and the uh, North Atlantic or North or the Arctic Oscillation, and also like all, as Chris mentioned, all these other little factors here and there. Even when it comes down to forecasting for the monsoon, uh, I was reading something last night about it. it's like, oh, what can we expect with the monsoon? What can we expect with the El Nino? Well, it's like there is that you have to keep in mind the El Nino and La Nina, where what part, what phase of the Enso we're in. But you also have to keep in mind something that sounds really trivial, how much snowfall there is in the Himalayas. How is that masquerade high? Where is it setting up at? All these little nitpicky things that all add up yeah. in the in a long scheme of things. So even though we're saying typically this leads to this, that is not the definitive this is what it's going to happen. It's more like this is something we could potentially see. So think about it's just one factor and a lot of other factors mm-hmm. to make forecasts and long-scale predictions. Especially here. Uh, but if you are a coastal area... I know that we talked about this briefly. A lot of coastal areas, especially that are on our western coast, do not look forward to El Nino years. Right. Yeah. Um, especially 
down in South America. It can have a huge impact on marine life, and a lot of those are fishing communities. Mm -hmm. uh, you actually have less phytoplankton, which is the base right. of the food chain. Uh, La Nina years, on the other hand, are very beneficial. You get more phytoplankton, you get better fishing years, but more nutrients coming up from under, uh, from where basically that that plankton would be typically be deeper in the water, mm -hmm. and so it comes up to the surface. It, it's yeah, it's a yeah, yeah. That they, which you wouldn't think of with, uh, I mean, El Nino, La Nina here, we think of weather patterns, but along coastal areas, they're thinking fishing season they're mm -hmm. thinking how am i going to make money i think the mm -hmm. national weather service in medford oregon i think just posted this because we got really cool uh sea surface or really cool sur sea surface temperatures off the coast of oregon and california now and that's due to some upwelling and, and water being drawn upwards um, because of the wind pattern mm -hmm. they're pushing out you know pushing water away from shore so water from deeper end stuff rises up anyway it's it's noticeably cooler water and they said hey this is great for a fishery uh you know for fisheries because they're you know, there's more fish because they're feeding on these uh, on these nutrients and plankton that are deeper in the water. And it's interesting to think about because uh, one thing I didn't think about when I was in school until they obviously taught it was that that's already a, on the side of the Pacific Ocean. That's the cool side of the Pacific Ocean too. Is the one we're on, or the side that connects the United States. The uh, gosh, directions eastern um, eastern edge of that basin is cool, and then it's always the western that's always warmer which is interesting to think about. And so it's already cool. Now we're adding in more cool. That's helping the marine life. And it's, I just, I don't know. I, I'm always excited side. to see the connection. Yeah, yeah the, the connections are endless. And I mean, we can, and that, it's so much, right, to try to factor in because what you end up with as you go into the world of weather, and I learned this early in my career, the more I looked at, the more data started to contradict itself, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so you start off when you forecast, at least uh, this is how it worked for me. When I started forecasting it was very simple i looked at three basic models and made my forecast and then i started gradually bringing in more tools and i'm like now i'm just running in circles because there's so much conflicting stuff and eventually you learn out how to drown out the noise it's a little harder to i mean climatologists are better at this than i am but it you how all these tele they're called teleconnections how these teleconnections all link together and they do interact with one another and but predicting exactly when each one is going to spike up at exactly the right time to do something nuts with this other one and it just so until you figure that out which i don't know if we ever will because there's a, some there's some things that i don't know if even the best equations and in, in computers can ever 100 percent narrow down um, it's going to be hard to predict exactly how things are going to play out. That kind of feeds into um, to my next little part of this segment in uh, what's next for for us. So the models and, and forecasters all agree that we're heading into what would end so neutral, Lanada. Lanada. I like business. We, we really need to get that term coined. Oh, I yeah. love it. Hey, uh, National Weather Service, Noah. Hey, we have an idea for I'm, you. I'm just trying to remember who said it in class. Yeah, I was like, which when you, professor? Lanata, but they they deserve all the credit. I yes, think it's they great. do. Uh, so uh, we they gave us about a 67 percent probability that we'll be an intro, uh, enso neutral uh, phase uh, through the summer months, which 67 percent is pretty reasonable yeah. confidence. Now, if you look at, uh, there's only an eight percent chance for comparison that we're going to slip back or slip into a to an El Nino. So, highly unlikely, highly unlikely that we'll be uh, changing into uh, over to to El Nino this summer. Uh, but looking ahead, once we get into next fall and winter, predictability kind of drops off. 
the models, and this is not unusual, but the models suggest that we're going to head back or slip back into La Nina. It'll be a a second year La Nina, which is not unusual. Usually, you get you get La Nina, then you get you have another go around. Um, however, the forecasters are cautioning cautioning people: Hey, the models do not handle these predictions very well during the spring, and so they called it um, the spring predictability barrier. That's what the forecasters call um, these ENSO predictions uh, during the. Uh, uh, during the spring, so um, there's a chance. I, you know, the models give us a better than 50% chance that we're back into La Nina by this fall and winter. Uh, forecasters, I think, are shooting in the lower 40s at this point as far as the confidence goes. So anything can happen. Uh, so the picture, uh, once we get into the summer months, if those predictions are coming back with, hey, La Nina is coming, then you know confidence will increase and and we'll know and be mm-hmm. able to prep for it. But uh, so that's the way it's uh, it's kind of trending. Which means if we are slipping back, if we do happen to slip back into La Nina, we're probably looking at more influences from colder air coming in from the Arctic, more active severe weather in the southeast, and more hurricanes. More hurricanes, another active season. Hopefully not what to what we had. Um, that was quite active. Though if you go back and look, there were a lot of those named storms were, which I question whether or not they would have been named ten years ago, because of the way our observations. Um, they were named um, usually for less than twenty. Four hours oh. because they reached, they hit the criteria and then they either fell apart or made landfall somewhere. Yeah. And we had a lot of that last year. Uh, but that, I think, just speaks to our observation capabilities have drastically improved. Um, these new generation satellites we've got up there now are amazing. Are awesome. Them newfangled kids, they're new. <laughs> young people with the new technologies, the new toys. They, they are uh, they are great, and so uh, I think I think we're going to see higher numbers of hurricanes and named storms, and not necessarily hurricanes, but named storms, weak tropical storms that probably honestly flew under the radar um, a lot of the time. Um, I think that's something we'll see, but you'll still see during La Nina winters. There's going to be more opportunity for those storms to mm-hmm. develop. Anything else you guys would like would uh, would like to add? Um. Well, for La Nina, we parts of the central portion of the United States, and it does include parts of central Illinois, do tend to lean wetter during La Nina seasons. And there was definitely a lot more opportunities that we saw snow this past winter during a La Nina season. Not necessarily wetter, just because it was so cold and dry that had that influence, of course. But there was definitely areas that saw more precipitation than normal. Parts of Illinois... um Central Illinois, in fact, are still above average over the last year mm-hmm. in in moisture content. So, uh, Peoria's done okay. The northern part of the state again has been hit the hardest. There, they yeah. haven't had nearly as much. One of one of the maps I looked at uh, kind of cut off that wet classification just shy of northern Illinois, and then that started to sneak into the drier range. Um, when it comes to our trends, some of the lines do get blurred just a little bit, but. Uh, that's just because of the natural changes between El Nino and La Nina year to year. Now, I think you get greater influences uh, during La Nina's with uh, uh, lake effect snow across, mm-hmm. the, across the Great Lakes, upper Midwest, I think. Uh, so the wind patterns there are kind of a big—I don't know if we even had any blockbuster lake effects this past winter up in the typical— Um. <sighs> I mean, there may have been a few, but I don't know if there was anything that was unusual. We had the only thing that I can think of is when we had that big snow where everything shifted to the southeast, but Chicago still had that big influence, and O'Hare got 
that 14 inch addition, but yeah. they already had yeah, so got, much snow. The there. northern part of the state did get hit quite hard. Yeah, early in the season, yeah. we were mm-hmm. wondering if we were going to see any snow at all because it took forever. Yeah, for it to down here. I know that uh, I have a friend in Buffalo. I mean, that's the edge of the Great Lakes, but she had I think one, maybe two shots of normally they get more, three, four, five, six mm-hmm. shots of good lake effect and she only got really one or two good ones this year yeah, yeah we had a weird winter where like the north was getting so much snow and then suddenly part way through we just flip-flopped it did and yeah. pushed everything to the south yeah all right well that's gonna be the we'll go ahead and wrap up our but but chris cool but what, chris what? oh you I've, said you had i have a cool <laughs> all right peace he and says it's cool, but it's a, let's come on, let's be real. It's a dad joke. Let's go. No, right. dad jokes are the best. Okay. Well, I'm 50 50 on that on topic. Them. When does a joke become a dad joke? When it becomes apparent. 